Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. This is your host, Deacon Andrew Brazier. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for gathering us to study your word from John's Gospel, chapter 17. We ask that you would speak to us this morning, Lord. Now, by the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There's many different kinds of prayers that we like to pray. In fact, as Anglicans, we have a whole book devoted to common prayer, don't we? If you go through the book of common prayer, you see there's prayers for almost any occasion. There's prayers of blessing for marriages, there's prayers for people going to war, there's prayers that you can pray on a Sunday morning to get your heart ready for church, there's prayers for children, there's prayers for women who are uh, pregnant with children, there's prayers for almost anything that you can think of. When we come to God, we want Him to answer our prayers. Well, let me rephrase that. God always answers our prayer, doesn't He? He either says yes, He either says no, Or he says, we're going to hold off on that for just a moment. He always answers our prayer. It's just not always the answer we want to hear, is it? But we have a promise that when we pray in Jesus' name, he will hear our prayers. Now, what does that mean, in Jesus' name? Does that just mean that we throw in Jesus' name at the end of all our prayers? No, to pray in Jesus' name means that we pray according to his will and according to his purposes. We want God to hear our prayer every time we come before the throne room. And that's a good thing. We should want God to hear our prayer, and He does hear our prayers. He is our loving Father. We have been adopted into His family. Did you know that God has a prayer that He wants us to answer? We see in John's Gospel, chapter 17, this is called the Great High Priestly Prayer, of Jesus, the Son of God, praying to his Father up in heaven. And notice the content of his prayer. In verse 20, he prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' prayer to his Father is one of unity. It's a prayer of oneness for his church, for his disciples, for everyone who calls themselves Christian. He prays that they would be one. He prays that we would be unified. So we should want to answer his prayer, shouldn't we? We should hear his prayer and seek for unity. Now, how does this unity work? Well, in this text, there's sort of three aspects of unity. There's first of all, the unity that flows from the Son with his Father. Jesus is unified to the Father. St. Augustine, one of the great church fathers, talks about the way that the Trinity works out, and he says, 
God the Father is in relationship with God the Son, and He loves His Son, and the Son loves His Father, and the Holy Spirit is the love that binds it all together, flowing back and forth from God the Father to God the Son. There's, a, there's a, an intimate family connection in the Godhead. It's one God, but three persons, isn't it? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've probably seen the diagram of, of, of the triangle, and in each corner of the triangle, it says Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in the, the connecting lines between Father and the Son, it says, is not. You know, and the connecting line between the, the Father and the Holy Spirit is, is not. And the connecting line between the, the Son and the Holy Spirit is, is not. But then there's a circle in the middle, and there's a line that comes inside it, touches the circle, and the connecting lines say, is. And in the middle is God. So the idea is the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, but the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet we don't believe three gods, we believe in one God. So there's this union between the Trinity, between the Father and His Son. We are invited into that union. That's the second union we see in this text. There's a union between God and his people, between Jesus and the church. How are we invited into that union? Well, first, we must realize that we don't deserve this union whatsoever, do we? What we are deserving of is to be condemned in our sins. When we look to the law of the Old Testament, We say that it is a perfect, good, wonderful thing. It is God's heart for morality. And when we examine our own morality by that standard, by God's standard, we realize we we mess up pretty good, don't we? Even someone as righteous, that we we might say as righteous as St. Paul, who wrote so much of the New Testament, when he looks at the law, he says, I'm a covetous person. Romans chapter 7, he says, when I examine my own morality by the law, I walk away guilty of coveting. I wouldn't even know that coveting was a bad thing, but the law tells me that it's bad. And I stand condemned before God. I stand condemned deserving of hell and damnation because God demands perfection from his law. What are we to do? We all stand condemned before the law. You may not have actually killed anyone, But if you remember in the New Testament, Jesus comes up and he sort of turns the heat up on the law. And he says, it's not just about the physical act of violence. It's about hating someone in your heart. Even if you've hated someone, you're guilty of killing them, guilty of murdering them. It's not just about committing adultery, the physical act of adultery. But even if you've lusted after someone, you're guilty of adultery. See, Jesus takes the external and he applies it to the heart. He turns the heat up on the law. And we all walk away going, wow, I'm in a lot of trouble. I'm condemned in my sins. But God doesn't leave us here, does he? God comes and offers us his gospel. The free forgiveness of sins found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Dying on the cross for you, dying on the cross for me. This is the grace that he gives us. And we receive this by faith so that we may be united to God the Son. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, this union actually happens in the act of baptism. He says, when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ in his death, 
and you will be resurrected with him in his life. Baptism sort of is, is this visual sign of the grace that God has given us and, and the faith that we have received. It's, it's the visual sign of our union with Christ. It's much the same way that a husband and wife are united to each other through marriage. We are united to Christ in our relationship with him as well. And we receive this grace by faith. We enact this every Sunday when we come forward and receive his body and blood in the, in the Holy Communion meal. It's that union language. We're always being united and, and united and united and reunited and affirming that union that we have with Christ. His grace comes to us. We receive it by faith. So the first union we see is between the Father and the Son. The second union we see is between us and Jesus. And that gives way to the third union that we see in this text. The third union is one amongst Christian brothers and sisters. You know, think about it. If we're all united to Jesus, then we're all united to each other, aren't we? This is what Jesus prays for. Jesus prays that the church who is truly united to him would act like it. He says, I pray that they would be one as I am one with my father. How do we realize this union in our day-to-day -day life? How do we actually walk out this union that we all truly share with each other, but sometimes we don't act like it, do we? We bicker, we fight, we have disagreements, we have schisms in the church, we have different denominations breaking off from this group and that group. When we look around at the church, the church is not one. Well, I have some ideas for you this morning. We work out our union always by returning to the gospel message. Let me explain what I mean by that in just a moment. But I want to first say this is where our secular culture gets it completely wrong, right? When I look at the news and, and, and what pops up in my social media feed, you know, the world right now in America, this historical moment, is all tied up into social justice. You've got these social justice warriors that are working for equality, you know, working to get rid of prejudice and racism and all these things. That's all good. I'm not here to tell you that that's bad. We should work for social, work for social justice. In fact, the gospel has implications on how we love our neighbor, doesn't it? But where, where the secular culture goes wrong is it doesn't begin with the gospel. The secular culture doesn't look first to itself, but it looks to other people. And it says, what's wrong with you? Or what's wrong with this system of oppression that's been fostered in America? And how can I fix you or how can I fix this system? And what ends up happening is when we try to fix each other, we end up grinding up against each other, and now you end up having these, these people who are just in a rage trying to fix everything that's around them, trying to quit all the, quote, hate speech and all this other stuff, trying to fix each other. They don't start with the gospel. That's where they go wrong. In the church, you also see this at times. I don't know if you've been to any of these social justice type conferences, but they oftentimes start the same place that the culture starts. They just try to end up at Jesus in the end. Well, that's not going to work either. Where we have to start if we're going to truly be in union with each other is with the gospel. And what does the gospel say? The gospel says to us, you 
are a sinner. If you want to fix the world, start with yourself. You know, it's, it's that old saying, everyone wants to change the world, but no one wants to help mom with the dishes. If you want to fix the world, look to yourself first. Isn't this what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount? If you got something, if you see a sin in your brother, look first to yourself. Take the plank out of your own eye so that then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We must start by examining ourselves in light of God's law. We must start with a place of repentance, asking God to reveal to us the sins that we believe, asking God to reveal to us the underlying prejudices that we may have that we don't even know about. We ask God to heal us first in light of his gospel so that we can then see clearly to remove the speck from our brothers and sisters' eyes. We pray that God would search our hearts for the pride, for the arrogance, for those blind spots in our thinking before we engage in meaningful discussion with others. There's these, uh, a lot of groups that I'm a part of online, on Facebook, and uh, many of them are theological groups, and groups that talk about the Bible, and a couple different Anglican groups, and prayer book groups, and things like that, and oftentimes a question will come up in one of the groups, a theological question. <laughs> I used to want to engage the question all the time. You know, oh, this person needs an answer. I should give them an answer. And then, of course, everyone's thinking that. And so what you get is just a hodgepodge of different answers, which leads to arguments. Because, oh, I disagree with you. Oh, I disagree with you. And, and we think that because we're behind a screen that we don't have to love our neighbor as ourselves. We think that we can type our answers with our fists and, and tell these people what they need to think. And it just devolves into this shouting back and forth. And I've tried to distance myself from those conversations as much as possible. Not only will, be, will we be held accountable for every thought, word, and deed, but we'll be held accountable for every word we type as well on the computer on the last day. Something to think about. So what I've started doing even just this past week in light of this text is when I come to those debates or, or, or when I see people espousing really bad doctrine online, I've tried to stop responding. Do you know why? It's not my responsibility to make sure everyone online has right doctrine. It's the Holy Spirit's job, right? And that's something God's teaching me. So instead, what I do is I pray, Lord, reveal to me my own blind spots. Reveal to me my own gaps in my, in my doctrine, my, my, the, where I'm thinking wrongly, where I'm misreading Scripture. Reveal that to me. And reveal the blind spots of this person on the other side of this computer. That's how we seek for oneness. We seek for oneness by returning to the gospel. We seek for oneness by examining ourselves in light of Christ's gospel. By being quick to judge ourselves, to take the speck out of our own eye before we're quick to remove the speck from our brother's eyes. In just a few moments, we're going to be invited forward to celebrate the oneness in Christ that we have. The Eucharist... The Holy Communion meal is a sacrament where we celebrate our oneness in Christ. We are all invited to the table together like a family. I know all of y'all being good Southerners know that, that when you want to really get to know someone and show someone love, you invite them over for a meal, don't you? And if people are sitting down at the table and there's bickering going on, it comes out at the table, doesn't it? That happens to me, me and my Thanksgiving dinner sometimes where the whole family's gathered there at Thanksgiving and it's only a matter of time before that little that stuff that's under the surface starts to bubble up. 
something very sacramental about meals. It just brings out the best in us and it brings out the worst in us sometimes. We're forced into this intimate fellowship with people around food. And this is the way God God ordained it. God wanted it done this way. We gather together at the Lord's table. He feeds us himself, his own body and blood. Jesus says, when you bring your sacrifice, when you bring your offering to God, if you have something against your brother or sister, go take care of it first. Leave your offering and go see to that relationship that is broken. Get the relationship right first before you come back and and give your offering. What that means is you might need to apologize to someone before you come forward for Holy Communion. You might need to give someone a call and say, hey, there's some beef between us. Let's settle it. You know where the history of the kiss of peace came from? It came from this idea. Today in American culture, we say, you know, peace be with you. Yay, amen. Let's all go around and shake hands with each other. But it used to be in the very early church that the priest would stand up and you'd have some deacons walk to the back and they'd lock the doors. And then they'd get real with each other. And the priest might call people out and say, Andrew, Woody, I know y'all got something against each other. Y'all need to settle it right now because we're about to take communion together. If you enter into this sacrament of union, where you are saying that I'm united to Christ and therefore I'm united to everyone else at this table, and you're not really united to them, then you're making a mockery out of the sacrament. And we're not going to have that. So this morning, we're going to do the same thing. No, I'm just kidding. We're not actually going to do that. (laughs) Could you imagine if we did that? But the, the kiss of peace is an opportunity for us to take a few moments and realize we are about to declare our union with each other because we're first united to Christ. Our union always flows from our union with Christ. So let's honor Jesus' prayer. Let's answer Jesus' prayer where he prays to his Father, says, Lord, may they be one as we are one. Paul says, as much as you are able, try to live peaceably with each other. Notice he says, as much as you are able. He knows the human heart. He knows the condition. He says, it's, you can't always do it, right? But as much as you are able, if you can make the phone call, if you can go to your brother or sister, if you need to examine your own heart and repent for something, if you need to restore something to someone, as much as you are able, you ought to do that so that we can gather together answering Jesus' prayer and saying, yes, we are one. We are not going to make a mockery out of your supper. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the union that we have with you by grace through faith. And we pray that this union would permeate into our midst, that we would be truly united to each other in a bond of peace and love. Lord, for those relationships that we may have where it's not as loving as it could be, if we may be at odds with someone, particularly, Lord, if they're a Christian, we pray that you would forgive us and we pray that you would give us the words to make restoration to that person. Lord, may we be people who are not quick to jump into schism or are not quick to reject others, but may we be first people who always examine ourselves in light of your truth. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.
Lord be with you, and with thy spirit, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is meet and right so to do. Thank you again for joining us on the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. We hope that you'd visit us in person. We have Sunday worship uh, every Sunday at 1030 in the morning. And you can visit us on our website at www.goodshepherdacna.com or visit us on Facebook at Good Shepherd ACNA. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe, and rate the podcast. It not only makes us feel better, but more importantly, it helps those who are searching for Anglican podcasts find podcasts like this one and other ones that are out there on the web. Thank you. God bless and have a good one.